Nehemiah 9, 1 through 7. That's all we're going to look at today. And this message is just, what we're going to focus in on is the theme of repentance. Um, because I think that repentance is something that is, is highly misunderstood. Um, and it's, in fact, even just reading various views on repentance, um, they go from kind of extreme views of kind of sin management all the way to complete uh, ignorance around the idea, almost like it's a dirty word that might, you know, be off-putting to non-believers. But repentance for us as Christians is actually crucial to our connection with the living Christ. And I want to just begin by um, reading to you this quote that's up here on the screen. Um, Robert Farrar Capone, I call him kind of the king of grace. He's a radical grace guy, and when I say radical, he goes maybe more radical than I would even be willing to go, but I think he's a wonderful corrective um, to legalistic thinking. Um, and, and, and anyone who tends to be legalistic generally is deeply offended by Robert Farrar Capone because he's so committed to kind of Reformation thinking, uh, very, very Luther-esque in, his, in the sense of, of don't think for a second that you can save yourself. Um, but he says this, he says, repent, and I'm, I'm adding the word repentance here. He actually says confession, um, but he's speaking the whole paragraph about repentance. He says, repentance is not the admission of a mistake, which thank God in our better nature we have finally recognized and corrected. Rather, it is the admission that we are dead in our sins. It's powerful. It's a profound, profound statement. That we have no power of ourselves either to save ourselves or convince anyone that we are worth saving. It is the recognition that our whole life is finally and forever out of our hands. And if we ever live again, our life will be entirely the gift of some gracious other, the other being Jesus. And I think this is a very profound statement because one of the things that I think um, kind of plagues the church and um, and it is sort of the nature, I would even argue, um, of, of our tendencies uh, to make uh, repentance essentially um, uh, into something as a means of receiving grace. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can make it this, this idea that if I repent, then God will be gracious toward me. But what you need to know is that repentance always comes because of God's gracious intervention already in your life. No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws them. In other words, every movement you make toward God, in the words of Tozer, God is already previous. Our ability to see the light, to actually even recognize our own internal brokenness, and our desperate need for Jesus requires that God actually give us vision. It doesn't matter how much light shines into a heart that's blind. We need sight before we can actually see the light. And, and I think this is, this is super important for, a, for understanding a true ground of being. Because God's goodness um, and our, our vision of God's goodness uh, is, is something that will create the foundation by which repentance becomes a normal part of our everyday life. Repentance is that continual return to the heart of the Father. It is the presentation of our dead bodies 
to the living Christ that he might bring us resurrection life every day. So repentance is not a means to receive grace, but a response to it. Number two, confession is not, and repentance is not, um, about sin management, about, but about bringing that dead body to the living Christ for life. He already knows our sins, and our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. We live in what's called the, the future present. Um, there is a now and not yet reality to the finished work of Jesus. That the cross actually reaches back in time and forward to the ends of time and it reaches into the depths of hell and into the heights of heaven. This is why there is a paradox at its center. And it is not about you managing your sin. It's about Jesus saving you in spite of it. The thing that makes us sin less <laughs> is actually understanding that on our worst day we are loved. The things that makes us sin less is not focusing on our sin at all, but focusing on the only one who has truly, truly has the power to save, and that's Jesus. And he already, as I always say, he's not, he's not shocked by your sin. And if we remembered that we were sinners, we wouldn't be shocked when we sin. And he's not, he's not afraid of your sin. And he doesn't say, you can't come near me with your sin because God is in the business from Genesis all the way to Revelation of getting in front of it, putting himself into the midst of it. Jesus himself, the Son of God in human form, he who knew no sin became sin. Literally, he became sin without sinning. He didn't carry it like a backpack. He took it into himself, fully took it into himself. And so this idea that this is one of my great issues with the idea of the confessional, you got to keep track of everywhere where you blew it. And I think this plagues, this plagues fundamentalism. Um, it plagues many, many, um, f many churches under the umbrella of orthodoxy that we lose sight of the gospel and think that the Christian life is about, about the, the, the fool's errand of trying to actually keep track of every time you violate God's law. You can't even get out of bed without violating that law. Every time you walk by a homeless person and say nothing or do nothing, sin. Every time you have the opportunity to share the gospel with a stranger and you don't, it's sin. Sin is the air we breathe as fallen humanity and thank God for his generous grace because I find that like it's amazing how much sin I find in the things that I do for God. <laughs> how often I still try to show him that there's got to be something in me worth saving. That I'm like I'm like, I'm lovable, right? Like, I'm cool, Jesus. You love me because, I mean, I'm adding to this on some level. And he's like, no, you're dead. And I'm going to give you life. Because I love you because it's my nature to do so. Not because you're especially lovable. That's the beauty of the gospel. It offends at the same time as, as it creates hope. Um, and I think that it's super important. So, so it's, it's also, I want to just say this, um, absolution does not come because of our confession. Absolution comes because of Christ's finished work, and that is why we confess. We are resting in an absolution that is already ours. So when we confess our sins to one another, what we are actually doing is we are playing that beautiful role of a community of Christ 
living out the gospel in our brokenness and recognizing every day and reminding each other every day that listen, this is what we are, but in Christ we are new creation. And when we confess our brokenness to one another, what it does is it doesn't give the sin that's already forgiven power to wreck us. Repentance is also the acceptance of the consequences of our sin. Because it's not that, just because sin's forgiven doesn't mean it doesn't bring cause and effect. You can, you can be a, you can find the forgiveness of Jesus and be re, and be born again uh, in prison for being a serial killer. And you're still probably going to get the death sentence, but it doesn't mean that you're not right with God. And what I'm saying is that there's real consequences to our sins. So don't think I'm saying, should we sin that grace may abound? Because Paul made it really clear. We're not gluttons for punishment. Like what we need to live in is the victory of the full forgiveness that has come to us because of a God who has come down into the midst of our brokenness. This is a picture of radical grace because I think what happens is when we begin to try to manage our sins, when we begin to look at the things that what what generally happens is we notice the brokenness of others far more than we notice it in ourselves. That's why I say that, they, you know, there are two kind of the libertine and the legalist are both the wrong, wrong response. The libertine, you know, abuses God's grace, um, uh, abuses God's grace. The legalist refuses God's grace um, to others. Uh, and I think both both sides are, are wrong. What we need is the cross, which is the reminder that at the foot of the cross, it is the great equalizer of human existence. It's the thing that brings us to, to level ground. So when we look here at this powerful passage in Nehemiah 9, what we see is a people that are confessing their sin and the sins of their fathers and in there's the sins of the very people of Israel, people they didn't even know. And why are they doing that? Because God's graciousness has already moved in. He's already brought them back. He has already intervened into their lives in spite of the sinfulness, not only of them, but of the generations before them. And they take it upon themselves to speak out their broken history as a means of responding in worship to God's gracious movement into their lives in spite of that. And what they recognize and what they bank their lives on is that God's forgiveness and his mercy and his goodness is an immovable foundation by which we now have the freedom to confess our brokenness because if we base our lives in him, we are secure. What a beautiful thing. So I would argue that power over sin comes from a foundation of grace. When grace rules the house of God, forgiveness is the air we breathe. And that is a beautiful thing. It's why I practice radical vulnerability before you. It's the main message I preach when I go and teach, like in Cornwall, I had so many leaders come up to me and say, it is refreshing to hear a pastor say that he tried to kill a cyclist on the way to church only to find that cycle in the bike rack at the church and confess it to the whole body. Um, uh, you know, those, like, those kinds of things, is, it's, it should be more normal for us to be open about our own brokenness. I just read about another massive scandal um, in the church and it's just like, like the, the head of Soul Survivor in the UK, like 
coming under all kinds of accusations of abuse and the church kind of turning an eye to, to complaints. But the bottom line is that I think what happens to leaders is that A, celebrity was never a part of God's plan <laughs> for pastors. Uh, and I think secondly, um, we have bought into the lie that the responsibility of the preacher, of those in spiritual leadership, are to present an ideal to their community that they can't keep. And it creates duplicity, and it's very frustrating to me, where I think if we are actually honest about our brokenness, we actually would have a lot more power and a lot more authority in this world. And it's like, how long do we have to be, to, do we have to be blind um, to the dead-end path of, of guilt management? It's, it's, a, it's a dead end road. It's a dead alley. It's not going to get us anywhere. The magnificent love of Jesus is what brings conviction and transformation to the life. Um, and I want to be moved. My conviction needs to flow out of a belief that God loves me, and I don't want to offend a God that's that good. I want to live differently because He's that good. And that's what empowers us. It's, that's the yieldedness to the Spirit. It's the Spirit-filled life. So, Look with me um, at this text. Um, it begins in sackcloth and ashes, and it's Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Look at what it says. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth. Remember, they'd already ga- they'd gathered for the day. They were, they were so blown away by the word of God being read to them. They'd gathered, and it's like a revival, an awakening. They build. It's like they return. They rebuild and then they, they experience awakening. There's, there is a, 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 an act of faith to step into the plan of God when they didn't even understand it. And the purpose of stepping into that plan was God brings his people together around a unified task. And that unified task brings them together into the city square where they publicly have the word of God read for a half a day. They're so overwhelmed that the priests have to get up and tell them to stop mourning, to go home and to celebrate God's graciousness. They are undone by God's goodness toward them. It was grace that came into their lives and brought them to a place of breaking. It is the kindness of God, it says in Romans 2, that brings us to repentance. And here they are gathered again. In the assembly, the people were gathered, of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was usually, um, it was like a, like a garment um, that was made of coarse hairs. And it was meant to be uncomfortable. And if you, you, see, you see it throughout the scriptures. And then when there was, when something bad happened, like uh, when there's, when, Israel was threatened. You see, you see the, um, some of the kings do it. You see David do it when, he's, when his, he hears that his son, he knows he sinned against God with Bathsheba, and then he finds out that his, son's gonna, his son is, um, is, is going to die, and he, he spends days fasting um, in, with sackcloth and ashes. Uh, and that, that picture is a really profound one because it's, it's the identification um, of I am... There's, there's filth. The, when, what's, the, what's one of the main words that, they, that Israel uses around the worship of God? That things must be what? Clean, pure. There, I mean, the Levitical law is built around, around this idea of holiness um, and purification. Um, and there's all of these symbols. We're told in Hebrew that all of the law, all of the temple worship um, 
everything that most, all of it were shadows pointing to the reality, the once and for all sacrifice that comes through Jesus, who is the priest, not in the order of the Levites, but in the order of Melchizedek, the eternal priesthood, the one who actually is the priest, the high priest that makes the sacrifice and is himself the sacrifice and his blood cleanses once and for all. So the purpose of those purification principles was this constant reminder that apart from God's graciousness, we are lost. That there is, there is a, a filth, if you will. Um, there's a disease that has plagued us. And so the question I, I think that's really, that comes up is really what is, how do we define sin? Um, because we, we, we struggle with this. It's not something that's talked about in church very often. Um, we don't want to offend people, uh, especially in a, in a culture that, that believes one of the great lies that's been propagated through the Enlightenment is that people are basically good. And any badness <laughs> that is found in society, any bad apple, it's due to um, breakdowns in society. So there's always this attempt to kind of create the utopian, um, uh, the utopian place where the basic goodness of mankind can once again arise. That was the goal of communism, but look what happened. It's, it's not going to be found in the systems of man. So as Christians, we need to tenaciously hold unapologetically to the problem of sin, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the fact that sin has rendered us impotent in our ability to reach God in our own efforts. And here you see the children of Israel, it says that they assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. They're literally, they're taking dust. They're wearing these uncomfortable, this uncomfortable fur that's, that's, that's reminding them of, the, it's like a disease on them. They're covered in it. They're putting the dirt, which is like the picture of what, what is, what is the picture of dirt in, uh, in the scripture? It's a picture of death. It's something we return to, our bodies return to. It's like we're... Like, we are plagued. Death has entered the world because of this rebellion. And, this, and the children of Israel are illustrating that. They are emphasizing that reality um, together, communally. Um, and it says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Can you imagine that? Like, we're, most of us probably, very few of us in this room know our great-grandparents' names. <laughs> Um, I, some of you maybe can't even say all the names of your actual grandparents uh, because you know them as grandpa and grandma um, or me, nana and papa. You're like, what was it? What was his name again? Um, but the fact is, is that we are a people that are quick to forget. And there is an anti-historical reality in our culture right now where history seems to not mean anything anymore, which is extremely dangerous, by the way, um, and is always um, at, at the forefront of the demise of any great culture historically. They always say that before a culture, before an empire collapses, there are two things that rise to the, to the forefront of, of every empire throughout human history. Uh, before it's collapsed, two things become prevalent in that society. You know what they are? Rampant sexual immorality and entertainment. <laughs> Think about that for a little bit. <laughs> Some of the great contributions America has made to the world. McDonald's, porn in Hollywood, 
and say, uh, you know, there's a lot that we can repent of, not only for ourselves, <laughs> but for the place where we have these incredible liberties and freedoms to actually worship freely. I mean, and that's the thing. Am I grateful for the country I live in? Absolutely. Uh, but is it like everything else mixture? Absolutely. Um, and when we lose sight of that, when we only focus on the good, that's why I don't like a lot of the, um, especially within the Christian world, I, I think like a lot of films made that are based on people's lives, like saints' lives, there's this whitewashing. It's kind of normal behavior. It's not just a Christian thing. When we, ide when we idolize someone, someone who did great things, uh, we tend to like get rid of the nuance of their lives, kind of kind of cover up the parts of their history that's a little more suspect or the things that might be an embarrassment to those who follow that person. Like nobody likes to talk about, about Martin Luther King's affairs because of the great things that he did. But that's a part of his story and it, it's a reminder that even the greatest of people um, are people of mixture. It doesn't mean that God loved him less, but it doesn't mean that he didn't cause his family much pain with that. It doesn't, Martin Luther in his horrific letters against the Jews that he wrote at the end of his life, um, or even, even allowing, encouraging the lords of the, of the feudal lands to actually stomp out um, a, an insurrection that was caused by his own teachings, um, and many people lost their lives. Like, does that diminish Luther's work on behalf of God? No, it does not. Um, but it does remind us that the history of the world and the history of the church is built upon the sins of our fathers and grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers. It is the plague of human history. The law of mixture is always at play and the, at the root of the law of mixture is the exceeding sinfulness of sin. So how would you define that? I mean, when we see these people, I love this, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord for the quarter of the day, for another quarter, if they made confession, um, it, it made, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So here they are repenting of not only their own sins, but the sins of their people, their, their, their parents and their grandparents. And Israel's history, they are confessing, Lord, we have been a wayward people. We are a rebellious people. And they are doing it because they are experiencing God's goodness. And that goodness is bringing to the forefront how have, why have we been given the privilege of being able to return to our home. But what we'll see at the end of chapter 9, they, they confess, Lord, we are actually slaves in our own home because Israel did not belong to Israel. They were allowed to return, but it was still under another empire. Um, and so they are strangers uh, in, a, in a strange land, uh, a land that is theirs and yet it's not theirs. I mean, when you think about Israel's history, this most mysterious thing, I think it's the only, the only community in world history, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, I'm not a historian, uh, that actually existed for almost 2,000 years um, maintained its national identity without actually a land, uh, which is a fascinating, a fascinating reality. They are the pilgrims of dispersion. Um, but in many ways, even this statement that they separated themselves from the foreigners, this isn't separating themselves um, from the sin 
of others, but it's a recognition we belong to God. There is a purification process. If I want to be effective as a witness to the world, I have to be in the world but not of the world. And the only way to do that is to actually continually come into the light of God where the God of creation can actually shine His light into the brokenness of our lives as we present to Him our dead bodies. This is a picture of of sackcloth and ashes. We come to Him. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, Lord Jesus, I confess that I am an absolute mess without You. I surrender myself to You today. And I pray that you would use me in spite of myself, that you would empower me to live differently, but only you are going to be the source of that living differently. And when I, when I come to him and confess my brokenness, and when I confess my, my struggles with one another, with, with, with brothers and sisters that, that, I, that know me and I, and I know them, when we confess our brokenness to one another, there is a freedom that comes a liberation that comes. doesn't mean that there isn't at times serious consequences for things that we do wrong, and there should be consequences. Everything has cause and effect. But what we need to do is build our lives on the sure foundation that even when we are experiencing the, the broken results of our own sin, that it never changes. It doesn't move the needle even the slightest bit when it comes to God's perfect forgiving, gracious love for you. And when that foundation is sure, it allows us even to endure the consequences of our sin and to do it with humility. Sometimes we have to learn these things through the school of humiliation. I have to say humility will come through the school of humiliation, but even those, when we, when we find that God has to humble us because we, there is a blind spot, there was sin happening in our lives that we weren't even aware of. You know how many times God has had to humble me in ministry that I, because I was complete, I thought I was totally honoring God, loving God, doing his work. But in the early days of my faith, I was unbelievably judgmental because for me, I got so radically saved. Um, I mean, I, like, I know what it was like to be dead <laughs> in my sin and trespasses and then to come to life. And I was so radically met by Jesus and for him to save my wife two years after me that when I first started touring full-time in music, I was dumbfounded by the, um, the apathy that I often found. Because we would be asked to play like youth group after youth group and, and college ministries and we're playing Christian colleges and I was playing with all these huge Christian artists who often seem to be more concerned about being rock stars um, in, in, a, in a world where it's a little easier to be a rock star than it is in the secular world because the competition is not, not as fierce. You know, it's like the first time I heard, I had hit, a, hit a hit song with Beauty of Simplicity. The first time I heard it on the radio was in Chicago between sandwich between Carmen, remember that guy? Um, and Michael W. Smith. And when your favorite band's Radiohead, I, in that moment, I'm like, I don't know whether to laugh or to actually start sobbing. Um, I, what I am realizing is that this is a mere tool by which Jesus can use, by, by which I can bring the gospel to a lot of people. And I, and I want to create a music for God's people. Um, and so cool should not be the goal anymore. And that radio program proved that that was actually not a possibility even. Um, and so <laughs> it's not like you go to a bar and you're like, like, I don't know, I'm kind of a big deal. 
amongst evangelicals. I don't know if you ever listen to that station, The Fish, but I had a big song on there. Like, Evan and I wouldn't do that. I know we wouldn't do that. Um, I, in fact, I, you know, it's the, the worst when someone's like, hey, didn't I see you on TBN? I'm like, yes, yes, that did happen. <laughs> I actually, I, I just got an email from someone that saw me on the 700 Club, and I'm like, once again, that was not like an, an ego stroker by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, these are the, the beauty of the gospel. It's like, I don't care about any of that. And I'm not, and I think that the beauty of what the gospel has taught me through the years of ministry is like, it's great when we can actually humble ourselves and bring our sin into the open. Um, and, and because we know the foundation that is ours, but it's also a powerful thing that the God of graciousness and mercy is merciful enough to actually correct us when we're blind to sin. And when I toured, I, I had no grace for people. I didn't know it. I didn't actually understand grace very well. Everything was very black and white to me. I'm like, if you got saved, then you should read your Bible every three months, like me. And if you got saved, you should, you should, you know, you should basically like give up everything you're doing. Like I, as a musician, I made, I was so intense, so black and white, so legalistic that I felt like if you're actually a follower of Jesus, if you really love him, you would never write a song for anyone but Jesus. I mean, that's how, that's how, how legalistic I was. Because for me personally, that's what I needed. But I was what Paul refers to in Romans, the, um, uh, the, 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 the immature Christian. The immature Christian is not the libertine. The immature Christian is the legalist whose world is, sits in a neat box of like, you don't do this and you do this. You don't do this and you do this. I think it is actually the mature believer, the greatest threat of the mature believer is a libertine spirit because you actually get so confident in the finished work of Jesus that you do begin to, your, I think the longer we walk with Jesus, the more freedom we have, just like a child growing up. And the older we get, the more freedom a parent gives you so that you can actually become a mature human being. If you handhold your kid and baby them for their whole lives, they will not be prepared to live as adults. And so what do you do? You give little more, more and more freedom. And every time you expand their freedom, you're creating more and more possibility of them making an absolute disaster of it. And I didn't realize that in the early days, I was like, my box was very tight, but I wanted to apply it to everybody else. Like, I remember yelling at my band for watching my band, I was 30 and everyone in the band was 19 and 20. And so their favorite show at the time, 2003, was Family Guy. They would watch it secretly when I wasn't around because I would get mad at them. I'm like, you can't watch this. This is a terrible, evil show. And, you know, the verdict's still out on that show. However, it was like, why was I focusing on that? And you know what's sad is I actually think that I played a part in, in the unraveling of a couple of those guys' faith because they all grew up in the church. They had lived very pure lives, homeschooled Spokane kids whose the only label they listened to was tooth and nail. Uh, and, you know, they were like little emo kids. Their dream was to be on that label. And then I invited them into a band because I had just signed to it. I didn't even know anything about tooth and nail when I signed with it. And it's like, so these kids get out, in the, out on the road with me and they start to just become adults and they discover things on their own and they're not under the thumb of their parents and only to find that they, they're now got a band leader who's beating them up. You know, I caught, I caught one of them smoking one, one time and I'm just like, dude, what are you doing? I mean, 
seriously, if you love Jesus, this is not something you would, like, how dare me? <laughs> like, it's shameful. I actually have called all of them and like, you guys, I had only been a believer for two years. I was like a baby. I was a baby Christian. And I had been radically saved and it seemed like everybody should be as excited as me. It takes God hum- bringing humility. He revealed the sin of my own, my own legalistic spirit that actually, I think, unraveled some of my friend's faith because I didn't show them grace. I showed them nothing but judgment. And I was always putting myself in a place of an elevated position like, I get it. Jesus, I get you. I'm, I'm, I'm really walking with you. I'm doing the Lord's work. Man, what a terrifying thing to be buried in sin. The beautiful thing about communal confession is it keeps us humble before our God. Because I would much rather you learn humility through confession and repentance than humility through the school of humiliation. But I would pray that God would teach it to you however it needs to be taught. Because humility is the necessary ingredient for radical evangelization. And I'm not talking about proselytizing. I'm talking about an embodiment of the message of the gospel that brings transformation to a place. And that's what I want for this community. Sackcloth and ashes is the right response. These people knew that they had rebelled against God, that their parents had, and they enter in. They take ownership, not only for their own sin, but they actually become sin bearers for their fathers and their mothers and their grandparents. And they say, we are a people that have sinned against you, O Lord. The things that we have done to one another, the idolatry that we have entered into, we have done these things against you. And we know this now because of your gracious willingness to forgive and to bring us back to our land when we didn't deserve it. And I think that's the biggest aspect of just knowing that we don't deserve anything, but we get everything when we surrender to Jesus, love him and love our neighbor. What a beautiful thing. So sackcloth and ashes is not an ugly thing. It's just an identification. This is why AA meetings, when an alcoholic says, my name is so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic, they're not reveling in their alcoholism. They are speaking it out, and that is the key to their power over it. And they're speaking it out in the context of community because they have recognized the only people that AA works for are the people that recognize that they can't do it alone. Christians should recognize the same thing. So what is sin? Let me just say two things about it. Sin is, first of all, a rebel. It's not the little things you do wrong. It's not the moment you, you swear or the moment you lose your temper or the moment you have a fleeting lustful thought or the moment you even look at something you shouldn't look at or do something you shouldn't do. That is the outcome of sin. Those are sins, plural, that are the outcome of a sin nature. Sin, singular. Sin is what we are apart from the grace of God. And sin is a disease that's infiltrated every aspect of our lives. I always say that sin is not a measurement of how bad you are. It is a measurement of how good you are not. And when we actually think of those terms, I, I always use that illustration. I go to catch the bus. I miss the bus by five minutes. Someone else misses the bus by 30 minutes. I don't turn to that person and say, I only missed it by five. You both missed the bus. That's sin. That's sin. That's why we don't measure our sin against another (laughs) because it doesn't work that way. It's not a measurement of how bad we are. It's a measurement of how good we're not. Sin is a rebellion against God's rule. It's every time you and I 
make decisions as if we are the ground of being ourselves. And we do it all the time as Christians. I think I, this is why I don't trust Christians who feel like they receive a word from the Lord and they, um, and they just go, I'm, I, God told me to do this. And then they just go out and do it. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, the, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. So don't trust your heart. Uh, if I trusted my heart, I would be already packing my bags for Broad Hembry, okay? Because uh, it's pretty appealing, that place. It's pretty beautiful and amazing and there's no garbage and it's ancient and it's lovely and I'd love to hang out with 85-year-olds like Edwina every day because it's good for my soul. That's, but that's not where God's called me. That's not, that, that may be a desire, but that doesn't mean it's aligned with God. We bring those things not only to God. This is why I, when someone comes to me and says, God's called me to be a, um, a worship leader. I'm like, really? Uh, has he told anyone else that you should be a worship leader? Well, no. I'm just, I'm just trying to be obedient. Well, sing for me. Well, he hasn't told me to listen to your voice because you can't sing. So I don't really care what God's told you because you can't stink and sing. And at the end of the day, that's kind of important if you're going to be a worship leader. It's like we're so quick to just define for ourselves. That is, that is the essence of sin. And it's so easy to spiritualize our own egos. What a weird thing. Uh, sin is a rebellion against God's rule. It's when we take our lives into our own hands and we decide we're going to make decisions for us because I know myself better than anyone. You don't know yourself. That's important to understand. Number two, sin is a rejection of God's grace. It's so weird, but grace is something we all long for, but it's actually really hard to receive. I, I noticed this when I tried to buy I, this, when Taylor and Megan and I were in Exeter, I wanted to buy them dinner because like Megan's been driving us around and it was so hard for the, the two of them to just like receive, I'm like, just let me buy you dinner. I'm older, you're like kids struggling, like I'm gonna buy you dinner. You're like, you could be my kids. And they're like, no, you don't have to do, please. Like, it, don't you understand that the whole essence of Christianity is receptivity, the willingness to receive what God gives. I always say that when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we always are talking about generosity, but the backside of generosity is actually receiving. And you're not gonna be a generous person if you don't know how to receive. People that, that's pride that says, I don't need help from anyone, I'm not gonna accept anything. That's why when any of my elders take me out and offer me lunch, I'm like, thanks. I don't even say thanks anymore because it's grace. We're functioning great. No, I was just saying. <laughs> My kids, they, they, don't, they don't be like, Dad, don't, don't buy. Like, they are so stoked. Henry loves to come home from New York and let Mama do his laundry and let me take him out. To, he's, he receives it gladly with an absolute open heart and open hand. Um, and that is the beauty, actually, of one who has lived in a household that's functioning grace. And it is a joy for me to give it to him. How much more does your Father in heaven want to give us good things? Our sin, actually, is, is like, a, it's like a wrench in the cogs of grace. And it prevents us from receiving because we don't want to believe that we can't save ourselves. That's really at the heart of sin. What about this? Look what happens. Arise and return. It may start in sackcloth and ashes, but the sackcloth and ashes came because God's gracious movement into the children of Israel's lives and the returning of them home. And that return to home brings them 
to a place where they are now aware God's light has shined into their lives. They've been obedient. They're allowing God to speak to them in the context of community, life together. That revival is bringing in about an unbelievable awareness of their sin. But now they are called, hey, it's not about dust on your head now. Now it's about getting up. And it's about returning to the heart of the Father. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shahaniah, Luni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chedaniah. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Stand up. I want to close right here with this statement. Is that God brings conviction to our hearts. But conviction is different than guilt and shame. Now guilt... There is, we should feel guilty <laughs> when, when we do things we ought not to do. That is a natural part of the human experience. And it is the, the, the light of God's immovable character that becomes, a, becomes like a plumb line from heaven that reveals how crooked the wall is. And we can feel that conviction. But it is a conviction that flows out of God's willingness to love us in spite of that. That is very different than this idea of like a guilt that leads to this shame and this sense of unworth that actually that actually grovels in that place um, because they believe the great lie that Satan loves to whisper into our ears it's the two-fold punch that he brings into our into our lives the first is it's not that big of a deal God doesn't care it's all about grace he'll forgive you just do it it's the moment of truth when you're like the crossing of the threshold of what is acceptable behavior. And you're like, it's not that big of a deal. And, and just, God will forgive you. Of course he's going to forgive you. Just do it. Just do it. And then you do it. And then it's the, the left hook. God's never going to forgive you for that. He'll never forgive you for that. And it's shame. And shame sometimes, I think, can be the thing that preachers can bring to a congregation that is what I call beating the sheep. And beating the sheep is not the goal of the Christian. It's feeding the sheep, protecting the sheep, laying lives down for the sheep, and recognizing every preacher should recognize you're one of the sheep, actually. If we're a shepherd, it's a small s shepherd. And thank goodness for that, because I need as much shepherding as any. I'm the, I am the sheep that will constantly run into the ditch because I just will. I don't know why. It's the, it's the fact that for every, for every movement toward God, I, I seem to have this uncanny ability to take 10 steps in the wrong direction. Uh, and this is why my book is called Stumbling Toward e Eternity. And it's why I think people actually can relate to that because that's what we're all doing. But there is a point when we need to understand that the conviction that comes into our lives, gospel-centered conviction is a conviction that comes because we know that we're loved and it's that deep conviction of offending a God who loves us in spite of us. It's the heartbreak. It's the willingness to come forward and confess because I don't want anything that would hinder me from knowing Jesus intimately. And Lord, 
knows that when we actually refuse to confess our sins, even though our sins may be forgiven, when there is a refusal to bring them into the light, the thing that happens is that we lose our vision. We lose what I call the beatific vision, a vision of God's manifest presence found in us and around us in this world. All of a sudden, those pinpoints of grace seem to fall into obscurity because unconfessed sin brings us back into a state of blindness. It puts us into a place where we're not receiving grace and we're not releasing brokenness. And so we actually are choosing to live something that we're not, which is we're acting like we're still slaves when Jesus has already set us free. It's what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. They were still God's people. Now, let me just say, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, there is a point for every human being where you must cross the threshold. You know you've rebelled against God. You know that you have, have violated who he is, you know that your life is broken and that it's, it's marked by frustration and you've tried a million different things to try to make your life better through your own effort and you just keep coming up short. Jesus comes to us and says, stop climbing the ladder, I am the ladder, come down to you. And no matter how deep of a hole you have dug for yourself, his love goes deeper still. And he says to us, rise up, lift up your heads, Trust in me. Trust in the finished work that I have done for you because you can't save yourself. Because sin is a disease and I am the cure, says Jesus. And if we refuse the cure, what hope is there? If he says, I have come to bring the dead to life, why would we want to remain dead? But also, why would we pretend to be alive? The only thing you can bring to God is your dead body. And the good news is that Jesus is in the business of bringing dead things to life but you gotta receive from him that life. You have to say, Jesus, I accept what you did on my behalf. I know that I am, I'm a mess. And Jesus says, it's okay that you're a mess. That's the only kind of people I save. It's the only kind of people I came for. He said, he didn't come for the righteous. And that was a very, very clever way of saying, because there aren't any. <laughs> as long as there is breath in our lungs, there is hope. But for those of you that don't know Jesus, let me just say, there's got to be a point where you cross from death to life. There's gotta be a point where you accept what God has done for you through Jesus on the cross. And you have to just simply say, Jesus is Lord, which is the ultimate mark of confession and repentance. Because to say Jesus is Lord is to say, I am not. And to say Jesus is Lord is to recognize that he is alive, because don't, you don't follow or serve a dead Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is to say, my kingdom go and your kingdom come. To say Jesus is Lord is to recognize our rebellion and we come under the full covering of, of his, his kingship which brings us into his service. What a beautiful thing. But for each one of us, we have to do that again and again. It's not like salvation is a one-time thing. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. And this is why every day is a day in which we must surrender our lives to Jesus. So I would ask you as we close right now that you would stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. That you would cry out, blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. That the ground of being for you and I is the God of the universe who spoke and the universe leapt into existence is the same God who has entered into the depths of our brokenness and made a way.
And that way is Jesus himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life forever. Amen? Let's pray.